And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest, freshest, deep down things. That's Gerard Manley Hopkins from his well-known poem, God's Grandeur. Welcome to Deep Down Things, a podcast partnership of Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. Join us for a deep dive into everything from literature, history, art, to philosophy and science as a way of discovering and sharing the depths of God's grandeur together. Welcome to Deep Down Things. I'm Dave Devil. I'm a professor of Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota and also the editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. I'm here as always with my co-host, award-winning singer, speaker, writer. I think I've said dancer in the past. She does many things, but it's Liz Kelly. Liz, how you doing? Good, good. Great to be here, my friend. Great to be here with you, and it's great to have on the line with us Helena Tomko of Villanova University. She has written a couple of pieces for us in Logos, one on interwar German writers, but we're talking with her today about an article she did in our Reconsiderations feature where she introduced some poetry and prose of Gertrude von Lefort. Helena, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me. It is great to have you. And uh, could you say a little bit about your background and about, about your work? Yes, absolutely. So um, I am a, a Germanist, um, and I was uh, trained um, in the United Kingdom and did all my studies there and actually did my doctorate at Oxford on Gertrude von der Fall. Um, and as a scholar, that led me deeper into uh, the study of the cultural life of early 20th century, and especially interwar um, Catholic culture in Germany, and increasingly so um, Catholic writing in the Third Reich, which is quite a, an involved topic. Um, and um, most recently, I've been working on the scholar um, Theodor Hecker. Um, and the other half of my, my scholarly work is on, on Catholic fictions more broadly. Um, and so my work on Lafour, which we'll be talking about today, has sort of led me in these parallel directions, in, deeper into the study of uh, German Catholic culture, but also deeper into the study of what I call sacramental realism, the kind of Catholic imagination, um, as we find it in so many of the novels we love um, that come from the Catholic tradition and maybe also some that we would like to see come into being, um, the study of what makes for, for great Catholic fiction. Um, and I, um, English accent aside, I married an American, and I now <laughs> uh, teach at Villanova University, um, where my husband, Dr. Michael Tomko, um, is actually currently my boss in the Department of Humanities. Um, <laughs> he is also interested in, in Catholic literature, and his work is in the Romantic period principally. Um, and the Department of Humanities is, 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 is shares some similarities with Catholic studies at St. Thomas, um, some similarities with sort of a great books program, but we sort of do a, a great questions approach uh, to our undergraduate curriculum. That, that's kind of our, our model um, in, at Villanova for our sort of hybrid between Catholic studies and, and, and great books. So. Um, I loved working on this particular Reconsiderations. Uh, your contribution was to the journal in our Reconsiderations feature, which is reprinting 
lesser-known works, rediscovering uh, works that may have been forgotten. And, and yours does that exactly and so beautifully with Lafort. And uh, I was especially fond of the poetry, the sort of mystical poetry that you brought forth. It's not something that I had read before. Um, and you speak of her work as sort of teetering between art and prayer. I mean, can you talk a little bit about who she was, why she was important? The fact of her being a convert, I think, uh, probably helps to influence. I think at one point I thought of faith as being her main character, <laughs> more than uh, working to develop plot or character in a traditional sense of uh, the ways we might think about literature. She was so interested, as you say, in the theological riddles. Uh, can you speak a little bit about her and put her in some context for us? Yes. I mean, she's not a name that most people will have heard of. Mm -hmm. um, um, but it's important to know that for um, an entire generation, she was a very important name mm -hmm. in uh, Germany and not just among, among Catholics. So Pope Benedict XVI often references her as somebody he read when he was younger. Um, and so she shows up in the footnotes um, of a lot of people's memoirs as a book that really is, as a writer who really influenced them in the sort of mid-20th century. Um, what's interesting about Lefort, well, many things are interesting, but one, one being that she was born in the 1870s, um, but she didn't really publish um, significantly until the mid-1920s. So she was nearly 50 by the time she, uh, she became well-known as an author. Um, and she was a baroness and lived a sort of almost like a German version of a Downton Abbey life um, <laughs> until, um, until the First World War came along and really rocked her world in, in, um, in extraordinary ways. Um, so the aristocracy in many ways collapsed. So the world she belonged to didn't really exist after 1918. Mm. Um, she'd been almost like a lady of leisure and attended Heidelberg University as an auditor for many years, making friends with some of the most important scholars of the time, Max Weber and Trotsch. She regarded mm -hmm. the liberal theologian. She regarded him as her best friend, in fact. Um, but at, 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 around 1918, all of that world just sort of collapsed and changed dramatically. Um, and it was around about that time that she grew closer to Catholicism and had some very powerful encounters with the interwar, post-World War I church. Um, and at that point, um, sort of was creeping closer and closer to being received into the Catholic church. And at one point, she was living very near to a Benedictine abbey and would attend the liturgy of the hours. Um, and it was as if the sort of pious Protestant faith of her upbringing, for which she was always very grateful, sort of went technicolor. Um, mm -hmm. It was like as if she sort of discovered the fullness of faith, mm. the faith of her childhood sort of going like four-dimensional um, in, in, in the Catholic Church at a time where she was bereft of family and, and income. Her brother had been involved in a nationalist uprising and was not on the right side of history. So much was going wrong. And then, and then at the same time, she encountered the church in this powerful way. Um, and so she sort of broke into the Catholic world when she became a Catholic in 1926 um, with the poems that are included in the Reconsiderations um, uh, 
uh, article hymns to the church that's the that's the, 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 the sort of keystone of her writing sort of she actually called it the foundation of her writing she broke into a catholic world um with a fluency that she really attributed to her um entrance into the church. Um, so for her, it was kind of entering into full communion, but it was almost like entering into a full voice. Um, sort of so much of what she had studied and loved uh, suddenly kind of made sense to her. Um, Muriel Spark, who's a very different Catholic novelist from several decades later, she uh, described her own conversion as being sort of putting to an end of like deeming voices in her head yes um and uh and, and and sort of finding a confidence a kind of confidence in faith and a clarity of thought that just gave her writing wings and just allowed her to be herself in her writing and i think that describes very much what happened with lefort uh let's let's just Shall, shall I read a few lines? I think we Absolutely. should hear a little bit from yeah. her from, yeah. from the prayer of the church. Your prayers are bolder than all the mountains of thought. You build them like bridges over shoreless waters. You fly them like eagles to measureless heights. You send them out as ships into unknown seas, like great frigates into a wilderness of fog. The world shudders at your folded hands, and trembles at the ardor of your kneeling. You know, I could go on and on and on. Uh, uh, just a, a beautiful, magnificent um, way that she captures the beauty, the depth, the power of the prayer of the church. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's really quite extraordinary. Um, it, 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 the, the poems are a lot like psalms. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that they're written and and on mostly psalms of praise, and so you enter into that sort of hymnic psalmic mode, um, but it's the voice of someone. The the poems are in a narrative, and so they begin with a kind of crisis. They begin with a soul that's turned in on on herself, mm-hmm. um, and then a slow sort of opening up into praise. Um, and then this kind of outpouring of uh, of recognition of of what or even who the church is, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the 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 idea of the church in a way as being um, the true story of human history uh, is is I think something that is a through line in all of the poems. Yes. Yes. That this penetrating insight into who the church is, um, what the church is, um, is is a sort of sudden revelation of of, of a kind of cosmic reality, even. Um, uh, and Lefort was drawing in this on um, on a moment, I think, in in German thought when the likes of Romano Guardini was writing his very powerful beautiful writings on the church and on the liturgy and she was reading those and this was the time of the liturgical movement really taking off in Germany sort of the revival of Benedictine monasticism coming from Salem in France and sort of taking root in Germany and and, and exciting 
Catholics between the wars who were sort of newly encountering their own faith, um, but also this was a period of, of conversion. So these poems did find a natural audience um, um, and I think inspired uh, a generation that, that was um, newly kind of encouraged by this idea of the church as the mystical body of Christ and sort of... Um, you know, or, yeah, I mean, it's a poetic expression of that that was uh, infusing um, um, sort of Catholic culture at the time. Do you think that? Uh, do you think that if we could get some some more of her work out there again, do you think that it could be inspiring to us today? I mean, today, uh, in many parts of the world, particularly in the United States, but but elsewhere, we've seen perhaps too much of the human, all too human side of the church. And not that mm. that mystical heart. Uh, do you, do you think it, her poetry has that capacity to wake people up today and give them that sort of vision, as it did, you know, for people like Ratzinger and some of the Germans of yeah. you know several generations ago? I I, I actually think it does. Um, that several of her short stories and the Veil of Veronica and a couple of other novels have been republished quite recently by Ignatius and by Clooney. Yeah. But the poems haven't been republished, the hymns to the church, and I actually think they would be top of my list of things to republish mm-hmm. uh, by yeah. the four. Mine too. <laughs> um, and, and, and maybe precisely for the reason that you say, um, I think a certain generation could be, have been embarrassed by this vision yeah. um, because of a, you know, that kind of instinctive fear that Catholics have had at various times of triumphalism. Um, and a kind of wariness of sounding too triumphalist. Um, but I don't think that's the mode, actually the mode in which she's writing. And I think there's a particular way in which these poems and the vision of the church that she has can actually be really helpful for us, um, which is that um, she encounters the church as a convert as somebody who knows church history, I mean, she's not naive about the realities of church history. She was really fluent in her knowledge of medieval history, the papacy. You know, she's really not naive about the twists and turns of church history. Um, But when she kind of encounters the Catholic Church and she encounters this sort of cosmic vision of the church, sort of prepared for and, and with us till the end of time, and, you know, this kind of beautiful vision of the church as, as mother, as Eucharistic, um, it actually becomes the measuring point for how you would understand the brokenness of Catholics yeah. and the mm-hmm. brokenness of uh, priests or the brokenness of, of anything in the church that might disappoint us. Um, and because precisely it expresses the, the divine uh, dimension of the church, which is always bound up with a human dimension. Um, I know myself growing up uh, at school, we were sort of warned off the language of, you know, calling the church she or, or mm-hmm. kind of thinking of the church in, 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 in language that might sound grandiose or something. But I actually think there's a way in which reimagining the church through these poems um, can actually begin, begin a conversation about um, the institutional failings or the clerical failings or the bureaucratic failings of the church, precisely in an age where we're just still working over 
um, the, the, you know, the, the scandals and, and all these things that have disappointed and unsettled Catholics so deeply. I think, I think we need that return um, to a, an understanding of, of the church as mother and, and, and the dimensions that are expressed here. I actually had my own quote that I thought was quite useful for, um, for talking about this. She says in one of the poems, she's talking about um, the church during times of suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and she says, But you return from the desert adorned as a bride, bathed in brightness from the wings of the night. You come from the abyss as one living, from the eternal solitude as one whose prayers have been answered. You return from destruction as one who has found strength. Out of the invisible, you return with form and stature. And I think that that understanding of the sort of fortitude of the church and the willingness of the church to kind of do reparation for the sins of, of the faithful um, uh, is one that she sort of gleans from history. Um, and, and I think it could serve us well, you know, now to sort of uh, reanimate our own, our own sense of, of, um, of, of this vision. I found it restorative. And curiously, the lines that you read were just a little bit further down in the same poem that I began. Uh, it's one of my favorites. But these were uh, very helpful. And, and I think this is something I'd want to take with me into adoration <laughs> and, and really pray with more than study, which I think is uh, the idea. She, she, she wrote these as a prayer journal. Mm-hmm. So she didn't actually write them for publication. She sure. called them a, a lyric journal. So, so in a way, I think that might even be how she wrote these, as contemplation. Um. That makes sense. Have you ever read something about the Catholic faith or a topic by a great writer or theologian or philosopher, and you wish that you could personally ask them about something they'd said or how they got to their conclusion? We experience this at the Logos Journal Daily, And while we have the opportunity to learn more from that person, it's not a conversation that only a few people should be able to have. We think a lot of you would be interested in knowing and learning more. The Logos Journal and our St. Thomas Catholic Studies friends and supporters need your help to do this. It takes a good deal of effort to get this access and produce a podcast that is meaningful and helpful to you. We hope that you'll go to our podcast website, patreon.com backslash deep down things to become a monthly subscriber. For as little as $5 a month, you can be a podcast patron and in return get access to some really great bonus content, like online access to the journal articles we discuss and additional spiritual reflections and bonus episodes offered by Father Byron Hagen and Father Bryce Evans, great friends of Logos and priests in the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis. And if you're a patron to the podcast, one, you get the ability to comment on the podcast. And two, you can interact directly with us, our guests, and other podcast contributors. Definitely check it out to receive access to some of the best Catholic intellects currently thinking about deep down things. That's www.patreon.com backslash deep down things. That's one word, no spaces, deep down things. You make a good defense of her. I mean, you, the title of your introduction to her work is Her Golden-Hearted Catholicism. And you take the term from Flannery O'Connor, who 
kind of had a pejorative sense to that, that this sort of explicit display, and yet you defend that. And I, I think it's, it's a good point that you make that her poetry, even if it might seem sentimental to some, really does depict the church coming out of the abyss and dealing with these problems. You make a similar point about the novel Veronica's Veil, from which you, you excerpted pieces for, for Logos. And I think you, you said something about how basically she's working out this question of faith in this novel in a way similar to Henri de Lubac's drama of atheist humanism. So there's a, there's a kind of yeah. depiction of, of reality and of evil and of the difficulties of faith. And so maybe it is explicit, but, but it, it, comes out of, it comes out of a real experience and a real place. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, it's, it's Andrea O'Connor is always my measure for things. Her book, Mystery of Manners, I find so helpful for understanding what Catholic fiction is, what it can be, and what the difficulties that authors will encounter as they, as they write uh, Catholic fiction. Um, and I think O'Connor had this, this nose for authenticity, almost, mm-hmm, we might mm-hmm. say. And one of the reasons for that is that she, you know, she begins writing kind of in the 1940s, you know, into the 1960s. Um, and she's really like the heir to some of the Catholic writers of the interwar period, like Lafour, uh, like Georges Bernanos in France, um, or even like an Evelyn Moore in, in England. Um, and so she's so helpful for um, describing the kind of what of Catholic fiction, but also kind of throwing up flags about sort of where it can go wrong. And she was really wary of a kind of kitsch, sentimentalized. Mm-hmm. And this is where the idea of golden-hearted comes from. Um, but but the, the reason I kind of wanted to turn that around on, on Flannery O'Connor a little bit is that one of the outcomes for Flannery O'Connor is that she's very nervous about depicting sanctity. Or at least when she depicts it, it's going to be so almost sort of unrecognizable. <laughs> yes, yeah. Grotesque and weird. <laughs> it's going to be grotesque, and it will be, you know, grace at work in violence. Um, she's regards, you know, you know, rightly regards us as kind of distorted beings, and so even when we're made beautiful in grace, we're still pretty ugly, you know. <laughs> so she has, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful vision, and I think it's a deeply sacramental vision in Flannery O'Connor, but I think she herself knew that, the hardest nut to crack for a Catholic artist is the depiction of sanctity. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lefort just doesn't have that wariness. Um, um, and even if a mm-hmm. contemporary reader might turn to her fiction and find it a little dated or in places a little, uh, a little veering onto the sentimental stuff that, that O'Connor's wary of, I think she She's a, of a kind of generation where those worries were not quite what they would have been for O'Connor post-45. Uh, Lafour was writing in Weimar, Germany, where there was a real openness, openness, believe it or not, to things Catholic, um, and a sense of a kind of Catholic revival happening in France. You know, Sigrid Udset wins the Nobel Prize for mm-hmm. Literature for Christian Lahrenstadter. There's a sense of this is kind of where it's at. Mm-hmm. So she yeah. doesn't have some of that kind of anxiety about how is this going to go over with my reader. Um, and so as a result, you have a kind of plain style, 
she's quite happy to um, to sort of in, invoke the spiritual and and show uh, so try and show grace at work um, in ways that I think are maybe a bit of a challenge to um, our sort of you know post Christian Catholic imagination if that makes sense our mm-hmm. kind of the situation which we find ourselves now where um, as a as a as a writer, you're going to always be very wary of how this is going to be received. Um, so, so I do admire Lafour for that sort of guilelessness or that unabashed attempt to show grace at work. Um, and it's not naive and, and sentimental when it's at its best by any means. Um, you know, you mentioned the, the Lubac drama of atheistic humanism. Um, Lafour is very, very much aware of um, what she feared to be the kind of imminent collapse of of a kind of religious sensibility writ large across, you know, uh, across modern culture. Um, and so, the Veil of the Veronica, which is the second text uh, that was in in the Reconsiderations piece, she crafts into each of the characters a different version of the volatility and the vulnerability of the human person to the collapse of faith and the collapse of metaphysics. Um, And so each of the characters in that novel does represent a position. So they are a little more like types than they are full characters, but it's very beautifully done um, Mm -hmm. and very cleverly done. So you have a kind of Nietzschean type. uh, You have a sort of, um, Goethe-like uh, post-Christian Enlightenment figure, who's the grandmother, um, and you have this little girl Veronica, who um, is living in Rome with this cast of intellectually charged characters, and she's just super receptive to all of it. She's she's like a little. She's described as a little mirror, who receives all of these influences, and and in a way, her whole person her whole life is going to be determined by whether or not these forces kind of crack the mirror of of who she is or whether in a way she's able to receive something that she can then radiate um and so the novel is actually about sort of the rise of modern atheism and and the role of faith uh sort of confronting um uh the the loss of the loss of hope um, and uh, a kind of existential crisis that is sort of very characteristic of, 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 you know, kind of interwar um, art and uh, sort of the beginnings of, of what we would then call, like, you know, existentialism um, as the century moves on. And, and um, set in Rome, of all places. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, in these days where we can't get on yeah, in days where we can't really travel so easily still, um, uh, reading Vale of Veronica is a bit like a trip to Rome mm-hmm. because you almost feel like you need some gelato to go with reading it. <laughs> because, uh, it's mm-hmm. um, you literally wander through the different churches yes. of Rome um, and through the different ancient sites of Rome. Um, the Colosseum figures mm-hmm. significantly, as does St. Peter's Basilica. The Lateran, um, all of them. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean it. It, it really animates. Rome in the 1920s in a very memorable way. Um, mm-hmm. Of all the books that I've most enjoyed reading by Lafour, it was Vale of Veronica, mm. principally for that 
splendid conjuring of what it's like mm. to encounter Rome in all its many, many dimensions. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, I think, my favorite of, of the fourth fictions. You know, Flannery O'Connor had another sort of distinction between those who shout and those who whisper about the faith. And I was thinking about this. We seem to not be dealing with shouting or whispering. Maybe it's some third thing. It would, how, would you, how would you characterize this, this? I mean, maybe it is just golden-hearted singing or something like that. But how, how would you characterize this? Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, what, what O'Connor was saying there was she was worried about readership. The context of that quote uh, is about worrying about um, how am I going to communicate to people who are hostile to the way I see the world? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so she said, well, I'm going to have to shout for the hard of hearing and, and, and draw in sort of big, ugly lines for those who can't see. Um, I would actually say that Flair O'Connor herself does the whole, the whole range from shouting to whispering. And I would yeah. actually pick guffawing for Flair O'Connor. <laughs> guffawing. <laughs> guffawing is, the, I'd say, the lead thing that Flair O'Connor does. Um, but you're right. There's no way in which Lafour is a shouter. Um, it's it's just not not in her in her repertoire. Um, there are ways in which one could say that her writing is kind of um, contemplative in its tone. It's almost like a lullaby be, at times, you know. Yeah, I think, um, and and she that's intentional. Sometimes when something seems to be without contrivance, that's actually quite deliberate, you know, it's almost contrived. Mm-hmm. So I think she she wants an unabashed style. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the word I use throughout my article, actually, unabashed. Yeah. Um, kind of guileless. Um, for Vale of Veronica, I would say that it's, it's meant to be a kind of pouring forth from the heart uh-huh. that I would liken to... You know, if you wanted like a parallel, a literary parallel, I'd actually say St. Therese's autobiography, um, Story of a Soul, would be a good reference point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and again, there's some artistry in that, in writing a text that sort of invokes that voice. Or Georges Bernanos's lovely interwar novel, Diary of a Country Priest, would be yeah. another another place I would make a comparison. Um, so she's going for a plain style. Um, uh, and another element of her 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 voice is um, she really does think that she's telling the hidden stories of history. Yeah. Um, for, for her, the enunciation is almost like the key thing that you know that that makes sense of all history and all art too. Mm-hmm. Um, that. Uh, that the most significant things are, are the most hidden things. Um, and so often her stories take on a sort of historical voice, almost like they were a chronicle. Hmm. Um, and, um, and it's as if she's trying to find a sort of other history yeah. um, of the hidden spiritual realities that have moved through time and the stories that have been untold. Um, so that's not true of Vale of Veronica, but many of her other fictions assume, uh, well, they're historical fictions, um, and they assume this sort of, um, yeah, chronicle-like, oracular, historical voice. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. So uh, it's a really interesting question, and I actually think there's a lot to be gained from taking a zoomed-out look at the last hundred years of Catholic fiction and actually seeing the diversity of styles and voices and and how you know a reader like O'Connor was reacting both with enthusiasm but also maybe reacting against what she was inheriting from Europe um, and how there's an incredible interplay between um, these authors of the last hundred years who have identified themselves as Catholic writers of fiction um, and therefore are very aware of one, what one another has done. Um, I think it's quite a helpful way to, to read, read this, kind of, this kind of literature. That's great. Where would you recommend people start? Uh, you said, you know, Ignatius has republished some things. Uh, is Song of the Scaffold? That's probably her, her most famous one, I would think. Uh, or where would you tell people to start with, uh, with Gertrude von Lefort? Um, I think probably Song of the Scaffold is, is the best place to go. I have to admit that the, the versions that are available are often like old school book versions yeah. and they have like really bad study questions at the back and they tend to have really <laughs> yes. cheesy cover images. Yeah. Um, and uh, which, which aren't helpful uh, whenever I teach Song at the Scaffold, which I do, and I've taught it at Villanova now for 15 years, um, I always use Edvard Munch's Scream as mm. the sort of opening <laughs> yeah. image. Right. Um, and I think that sets the tone much better um, than uh, pictures of, of, of nuns, which is what typically tends to be on the front of the book. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Song at the Scaffold is a fictional retelling semi-fictional retelling, well, I'll explain what I mean by that. It's a fictional retelling of the martyrdom, of uh, the, the real martyrdom uh, of the 16 uh, nuns of Compen who were executed at the end of the Reign of Terror during the French Revolution in 1794. That is a true story. They are blessed, um, and it's, it's, it's all very true. Lefort retold that historical uh, uh, account of the martyrdom of these Carmelite nuns but added a character. And the character is actually a semi-autobiographical figure called Blanche, who is a little girl who has been racked with fear her entire life. She's been born into anxiety and into an anxious age. You know, it's, she's been born into France just on the brink of revolution and then enters the monastery right before the storming of the Bastille. So she's born into revolutionary times. And it's almost as if in her person, she kind of carries this shudder, this fear and trembling. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, the way that I have typically taught this book is, well, first of all, Lefort uses the French Revolution as something of a historical analog to Germany in the early 1930s where a lot of people are worried about, you know, communism being on the march, um, but also the rise of national socialism. Um, And so those two, those double fears, um, she sort of transplants that to the French Revolution. But she also is making a serious study of anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, so many of us have, have experienced anxiety as a kind of existential force. And, and she asks a very difficult question, which in a sense could be boiled down to, um, 
is anxiety in some way a form of suffering that can be united to Christ's suffering across yeah. and what would it look like for that to happen? Um, and uh, she asks it through this character of Blanche. Um, so I think to go into that novel with this double sense of its historical sort of resonance of speaking yeah. from one period to another, but then asking this big question about what is anxiety? Why do we feel anxious? Um, why can the whole life seem to be pulled along with this tug of anxiety? And how does that relate to the life of faith? Um, I think it's a very fruitful read uh, with, with those sets of questions in mind. That's a great place to end. Uh, she may be golden-hearted, but she also addresses the questions of anxious hearts as well. Helena, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Liz, thank you, as always, for being here. Absolutely. And thank you, listeners, uh, for joining with us on Deep Down Things. We encourage you to, to listen to the other episodes. See our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash deepdownthings, so that you can go and support us and see what's new. I thank you all, and God bless you. Deep Down Things is part of the Catholic Answers family of podcasts. For lots more great Catholic radio and podcast programming, please download the Catholic Answers Live app.